0: This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. The whole theme of the book of James is the Christian faith lived out. What does it look like? What does a real, true Christian look like in everyday life and so we're going to continue on in the series into chapter two next week. Steven's going to be sharing the uh, sharing from the second half of uh, uh, James 2 so I hope you'll be here Uh, Next week, as Stephen will be sharing uh, from that, but we're going to be in James chapter 2 this week. We talked about that the the writer of this book is obviously James. James was a half-brother of Jesus, and we uh, even uh, talked about how James initially didn't even believe in who his half-brother Jesus was, did not believe he was the Messiah. But Then we see in 1 Corinthians, James is converted, and he believes in Jesus for his salvation, and then he uh, becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Well, the church in Jerusalem had a very unique uh, situation on their hands, a very difficult situation on their hands. uh, As we even saw in verse uh, 1, that says that James writes this book to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed abroad. They were spread out. So why were the 12 tribes of Israel at this point in time, why were they spread out? Well, it was because of persecution in the church. They had to leave Jerusalem. They were being persecuted. They had spread out. And so we talked about how God uses persecution in the church to spread the gospel and to grow the church. That persecution in the church, though oftentimes we are afraid of it, we don't embrace it, and we want to avoid persecution at all costs, God uses the persecution of the church to glorify himself and then make himself known. So we went down into uh, chapter one and we saw James addressing these believers who many of them had had family that were tortured and killed because of their faith. James writes in verse two, consider all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. And so we talked about the first thing that James talks about in the Christian faith that is lived out is a person that has an eternal perspective on this earthly life that we have. That even though we go through trials and difficulties and suffering, that God uses that in our lives to draw him close to us and to grow in a steadfastness or patience. And so as faith followers of Jesus, we need to embrace difficulties, trials, and suffering, and know that ultimately God is sovereign over it all. Then last week we talked about uh, hearing and doing the Word. James wrote, he said, do not be hearers of the Word, not to be doers of the word, not hearers only, and that if we hear God's word but don't do anything about it, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves on even our own faith. That a Christian is not someone who's just gotten a get-out-of-hell-free card, but is someone who's to be living out their faith, that there should be a marked uh, actions, that their, their actions should prove their faith. We'll talk more about that going forward. We also talked about that, we talked about at the very end of last week, we talked about true religion. What is true religion? We talked about true religion, as James specifically mentioned in verse 27, "...pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress." And so we talked about last week how the, a believer, a follower of Jesus, needs to be looking after and want the good of those that are marginalized. James writes specifically about widows and orphans here in James 1, and specifically at this time period, orphans and widows, if they were in that situation, they were social outcasts. It's essentially, it was a life of poverty, So James is writing to the church to care specifically for widows and orphans. It applies to us today in that we must care about those that are marginalized in our culture and our society. And we even talk specifically about even the racial injustice that our our country is facing right now. And as as believers, we are called to care about those that are, are marginalized in our society and culture. But where we left off last week... James wrote and he said pure look at verse 27 before we get into verse 1 of chapter 2 he said pure and undefiled religion before the lord is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and this last phrase ties into chapter 2 remember when James wrote this book he didn't divide it into chapters okay that's not how he wrote this this is just one long flowing letter we just have broken it up for uh, just help but he where we left off was this phrase last week he said and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this last phrase of verse 27 is going to really unlock the next couple of chapters over the next few weeks. He's kind of laying out a new thesis. He's talked about trials and suffering uh, and difficulties in the life of the believer. He's talking about hearing the Word, and not, not just hearing the Word, but doing the Word. He's talking talked about uh, uh, having the best interest of those that are marginalized. And now he's going to say, okay, what does it mean to keep one's self unstained from the world? He's going to unpack that over the next few uh, sections. So now look at verse 1. He's going to start to unpack this for the church. So let's look at what he says here in verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here we find, we discover something, what was going on in the church of Jerusalem. Now remember, they're not meeting in Jerusalem because they're all spread out. But as they've been spread out and been gathering together, James reveals an issue that is going on in the church in Jerusalem the church of Jerusalem. James is kind of interesting. He really starts to hit on blind spots, right? Like, he's going to talk about murder and adultery here in a minute. And I, obviously, I don't think we would have much debate on that murder and adultery is obviously sin. It is, it is a, a grievous sin. It's a very uh, out in the open. There's not much debate there. But what James does so well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this is he starts to hit on the blind spots of Christians, he starts to call out different blind spots. As I've uh, been reading through James and preparing for this, like even the Holy Spirit in my own life has been beginning to call out different blind spots in my life. Hey, Adam, you're missing this. Maybe Maybe I'm not intentionally doing this, but it's just happening. And so James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to he starts to call out blind spots in the church, and he calls out a blind spot of favoritism. See, here's what was happening in the church in Jerusalem. During this time period, there wasn't much economic diversity. It was pretty much really rich or really poor. There was not much middle class there, okay? And the church of Jerusalem, believe it or not, was actually a pretty wealthy church. Very wealthy, uh, had a lot of leaders in Jerusalem, especially when they were meeting in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, It was the capital of Israel, and that is where the economy came. And so you had a lot of well-to-do members of the church of Jerusalem, and they had a problem of favoritism, because here's what would happen. They would give the best seats when they would worship together, they would give the best places to sit, or however they did it, not, not really sure, but they would give the best spots for worship to those who had the most money, okay? So basically, commentators have said, if a rich person came in with a gold ring on their finger, dressed really nicely, they would get a front row seat. Now, obviously, they were not Baptist, okay? Because no one would want to sit on the front row. They weren't Baptist. And so they... um. They would, let the, they would let the rich people sit in the good spots, and then if a poor person came in dressed in dirty clothes, they would then tell them to either, you hear you don't even get to sit, you stand over here. Or you can sit at the feet of a rich person. Now, I don't know what, I, I, I don't have a lot of self-awareness, but I do know that if I was asked to sit down by someone's feet that would be offensive, okay? And that's what they were doing in the, in the church at this time. Rich person, you get to sit down. Poor person in bad clothes, you can go stand over there, or you can just sit at the feet of, a, of a, a rich person. I mean, you want to talk about demeaning and offensive. And this was going on in the church. And so James, he calls this out. He calls this out, and he says, this is wrong, All right, let's continue to read and see why. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law of royal law prescribed in the, in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, James goes back to something and he says, here is why favoritism in the church is a problem. Here's why what you are doing is a problem. He says in verse five, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? What is James appealing to? What is James telling the church of Jerusalem to take a look at, to look at and examine? The gospel. He takes them back to the gospel. He says, he says, didn't God choose the poor in, uh, poor in this world to be rich in faith? Now, he's not talking about money. He's not talking about economic uh, wealth here, rich and poor. He's talking about spiritual poorness. And when we look at our lives, when the church examines their lives and see where they came from, there's an understanding that all of us White and black, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, we are all born into this world spiritually bankrupt. We are poor. We have nothing. We are born into this world because there is sin. We are cursed by sin. It is in our DNA. We can't help it. Why? Because our great, 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 however many great grandparents. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, they rebelled against Him, and so sin has been passed down through the generations. And you and I here today sin because of our great, however many great grandparents. They sin. And so we are morally, we are spiritually bankrupt. We are poor. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, So we are as good as dead. We are worthless. We have no righteousness of our own. We are separated from God because of our sin. We have no relationship. We have no home. And so we are spiritually bankrupt and orphaned. But here's what James says. He says, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? So he says, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a Christian, that you are rich, not rich with money and really nice things, but you are rich in what? Faith. You have been made spiritually wealthy. So if we believe in Jesus Christ and we believe that his death on the cross was sufficient for the payment of our sins, we are then rich in faith. We go from spiritually bankrupt to spiritually filthy rich. We've won the lottery spiritually because of what Christ has done for us. And not only are we rich in faith, but we're heirs. Heirs of the kingdom. So think of it like this. You get in a knock uh, you, you get a, 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 a knock on the door this afternoon and you uh, some lawyer uh, walks to your door and of course if a lawyer uh, initially shows up to your your house and your door, you initially panic. And, but this lawyer says, no, I'm not here, you're not being sued, but you have a great great uncle that you don't even know about. And he uh, was really uh, very wealthy, very rich, and he has passed away, and he has left his entire inheritance to you. Okay, that'd be overwhelming, but you would inherit that. You would be heirs of something. A lot of us uh, in family, uh, in our families, if we have a loved one pass away, we may inherit uh, furniture or or fine china or, or different things. When, so so. James is writing here, he says, that we are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. We inherit the kingdom. Now, when we inherit the kingdom, what are we inheriting? Well, in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, we are joint heirs with Christ. So that means we inherit everything that Jesus, as the Son of God, and the, the, to the kingdom that he has, we inherit that. We are joint heirs with Christ. So we go from this place, James is saying we, that a Christian goes from this place of being spiritually bankrupt to spiritually wealthy and an heir of the kingdom of God. You want to talk about a complete 180, And so James appeals to this beauty of the gospel, of us being rich in faith and inheriting the kingdom of God. He appeals to the gospel and says, listen, you were so spiritually bankrupt, yet God chose you, God called you, God saved you. Then he says down in verse 6, yet you who were spiritually poor, look at verse 6, yet you have dishonored the poor. What James is saying is you have forgotten what you have received through the work of Christ. You've dishonored the poor. Then he appeals in verse 8 to, he says, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. The spiritual, uh, spiritual life in Christ is loving Jesus and pursuing Jesus and loving and caring for other people. That's it in a nutshell. Yet, so often as Christians, we do not look out for the benefit of others. We look out for our own benefit. And we're selfish. And we play favoritism. Now we may not give. We may not, if, if a rich person or walk in, or a really poor person were to walk in, we may not necessarily play, play favoritism in that uh, in that uh, offensive of a way as they were in Jerusalem. But many of us, we have our prejudices and our biases towards other people. And we, as Christians, should be the most generous. We should be the most caring. We should be the most Embracing of poverty of anyone else in this world because we were spiritually impoverished. And so, if we do not have a heart for the poor and we play favorites and we we set things up for other people based on social and economic demographics, then we are playing favorites and faith family in the church. The reality it is, rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, we are all on the same playing field because we're sinful. And we need Jesus, and we've been saved by him. Let's keep going. Let's look at now verse 9. James writes, If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law, and yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Of breaking it all. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery," also said, "Do not murder." So if you do, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what James is writing here, even if you commit a sin, a sin that may not be quite as blatant or obvious as a sin of favoritism, we are still guilty of the entire law. If you remember in Exodus, after God had uh, brought his people Israel out of Egypt, God brought Moses up into the mountain, and what did he do with Moses? He gave him Ten Commandments, and we could, if we had time, we could quote those through. What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Why did God give Moses and his covenant people, Israel, the Ten Commandments? A lot of times we can think, well, God gave them those rules so that way uh, you know, they, they needed something to live by, and this was kind of a checklist for them to live by. To live by. And, and maybe maybe that's true. But the real reason why God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and his people Israel was to be used as a mirror, so that they, when they looked at the Ten Commandments of do not lie, do not dishonor your, your parents, to 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 observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, as they went through those Ten Commandments, that that mirror of those commandments would reveal to them just how sinful they really were. Because here's the reality. Every human being's lied. Every human being's dishonored their parents. Every human being has coveted. And so when the Ten Commandments is, is observed, it reveals just how sinful we are. And so when, so James writes, he says, even if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law, the law of, moment, the law of moment, uh, Moses, come on, Adam, the law of Moses as transgressors. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. James is saying, even if you can keep every one of these laws that God gave, if you just slip up in one small way, in one time, you're guilty of breaking it all. And then he goes on to say, he says, maybe you don't murder, but you commit adultery. And you might sit here and say, well, I haven't done neither. I haven't murdered or committed adultery. Well, Jesus even told his disciples, he said, anyone that looks upon a woman with lust after her in her heart is guilty of adultery. And he also said, anyone that's hated another person in his heart is guilty of murder. So we've all been guilty of adultery. We've all been guilty of murder. And so we are guilty of the law. And because we are guilty, we are back to what James said, we are spiritually poor. We're spiritually bankrupt because of our sin. So the question is, how do we then, as believers and Christians, how do we avoid this sin of favoritism? How do we avoid this sin of prejudice or biasness or... Uh, preferences? How do we avoid that? I think James gives us the answer in verse 1, so go back to verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism, and this is what he says, as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He takes it right back back to Jesus. And honestly, I don't think this is intentional. When we look through the book of James, this is only the second time we've seen the name of Jesus mentioned, right? Martin Luther did not believe that James should be in, uh, in the Bible because of that. I have a lot of appreciation for Martin Luther, especially what he did with the Protestant Reformation. I just think he's wrong about that. We see a lot of the teachings of Christ throughout the book of James, and the applications of it. So we can be confident that this belongs in the canon of Scripture, but he takes us to avoid the, favorit- the, the sin of favoritism. He takes us back to, the, to the, our Lord Jesus Christ, the faith we have in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What's James saying? He says to avoid the sin of favoritism, prejudice, bias, uh, or preferences. He says, see people how Jesus saw them. And what are some examples that we have in the Gospels of how Jesus saw people? Well, Jesus sat down with a woman at the well that went through husbands like a Rolodex. And he sits down with her and he says, you are chasing satisfaction in your life by just rotating husbands. But I am the living water. Drink with a uh, drink of me and you will never be thirsty again. Jesus, the the Gospels tell us that Jesus, as he would walk through the region of Israel, he would see the multitudes of people following him. And what does the Gospel of Matthew say? That he would see the multitudes and he was what? Moved with compassion for them. We see Jesus teaching, and he realizes that the people are hungry, and so he takes the opportunity to feed these people with five loaves and two fishes. He feeds thousands of people, and he says, I am the bread of life. Eat of me, and you will never be hungry again. We see Jesus having compassion and even grieving for his friend Lazarus who dies and is in the tomb and Jesus raises him from the dead and then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Over and over again, we see Jesus teaching and reaching all people. He even gave the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus reached Samaritans. There was racial tension in Israel at the time of Jesus, and Jesus didn't see people by their race. He saw them needing a Messiah and a Savior. And so how do we avoid the sin of favoritism and prejudice,ness and biasness, and preferences, we see that by looking to Jesus and remembering what Jesus has done for us, taking us as, as spiritually bankrupt people to spiritually wealthy people. So as we live out our Christian faith, let's remember just how rich in faith Jesus has made us, and let's see people as Jesus sees them pray with me. Jesus, thank you for looking on us as just absolutely morally depraved. Thank you for looking upon us as people who we've rebelled against you, yet you came and you died for us, and you were resurrected to give us brand new spiritual life. We thank you that you have taken us from spiritually poor to rich in faith. And I pray you would cause us to avoid the sin of favoritism and to see people as you see them. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.